0: Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is with Josh Pettit. Uh, Josh put together a wonderful book called The Mackenzie Reader. He's also in golf architecture. He owns uh, Pacific Golf Design. He does a lot of uh, golf architecture work. So it was uh, it was awesome to have him on and um, talk about his his book, The Mackenzie Reader, that he released uh, last year. It's a beautiful. Beautiful book and uh, definitely one worth checking out, but we talk a ton about the book and then also just Alistair McKenzie in general, um, his favorite anecdotes. He's done a ton of Alistair McKenzie research, so this was a really fun conversation. I was planning on putting together a second conversation for this, um, but I am traveling been kind of a hectic schedule going from LACC to the East Coast uh has not been friendly with the with the jet lag and uh the new hours on the East Coast with some early mornings to shoot but um really uh really great seeing some new new golf courses out here I was blown away by Hollywood uh the other day we had an event out there and and what a cool place uh, a Walter Travis designed that uh you know, we will have a write up in the future on Club TFE. Uh, if you haven't signed up for Club TFE, do so. Uh, if you want to, you know, more from us, we uh, we've been writing basically daily articles Monday through Friday on there, and uh, we do in depth course profiles uh, where we kind of break down the architecture of different courses, a wide spectrum of them, from private to public golf courses um, all over the country and uh, a little bit in the UK. So, um. Real quick, I wanted to do some closing thoughts from LACC and the U.S. Open. I was out there all week. I, I'm not going to lie; I, I don't think the atmosphere was great. The fan experience wasn't great. The you know the whole ticket uh, situation that everybody's talking about—the limited number of tickets for the U.S. Open—that wasn't great. But what I can say unequivocally, having attended a lot of the recent U.S. Opens, this was the best U.S. Open setup. In a long time, I think that uh, John Bodenhammer uh, and and his team deserve a ton of credit for the sensational setup and presentation of Los Angeles Country Club. Um, I thought the test, I you know, everybody was talking about low scores, and I think it was kind of a a silly thing to think about um, when you look at the when you look at the front nine. The 8th hole is a 510-yard par four, par 5. These guys were hitting 5 wood and uh, and then like 6 iron into it. The reality of par is that the definition of par is what an expert player how many shots it takes them to get to the green and then plus two putts. The first and the 8th hole. If the players if every player in the field hit the fairway, they were going for that green and they were going to probably reach it pretty easily. Those aren't par fives in the actuality. I think it was great leaving the first hole a par five to respect the way that George Thomas intended golf courses to start. Like an opener, super easy, easy, gettable hole in terms of par, a hard par four coming up after that. Now, if we just change the the par to 68, like it was, that's what this golf course, it was a par 68 for these guys. There was a... Reachable par four and two reachable par five. Two par fives that are really par fours on the front nine. If we change the par to 68, all of a sudden, the low score. uh, Wyndham Clark wins at two under. Nobody's complaining about score to par if he wins at two under. This is silly. You know, that way, if you do it that way, two guys were under par for this tournament. Anyways, let's just talk about scoring a little bit more. Thursday... I think, was the day that everybody freaked out. Xander Shoffley and Ricky Fowler shoot 62s. It was an ideal scoring day. Overcast, it spritzed a little early in the morning, and that overcast and the moisture in the air and on the ground just allowed it to be soft. There was no wind. Add in, the USGA is playing their first ever US Open at LACC. One of the big concerns heading into the week was pace of play. And also just, you know, you want to feel your way into that setup. So yes, it was scorable. But you had to play great to score. That's the thing that's kind of lost on everybody. You had to play awesome to score well. You had to hit fairways. If you weren't in the fairway, it was really hard golf course. And Ricky Fowler and Xander Shoffley... Shoot these 62s. It's not like these guys ran away to 20 under. They were way over par after that round. You know, if you look at the rest of their tournament, they were over par. It was a hard golf course. It was. It really did a great job of separating the players that uh, were playing well, the players that were playing mediocre, the guys that were playing bad. I mean, like Justin Thomas sh- shoots 81. Like, this was a golf course that really... You knew how somebody was playing based off of their scores. The other thing, the golf course got tougher and tougher every day. That's what you want from a championship setup. You want the golf course to peak on Sunday. You don't want it to peak on Thursday or Friday or even Saturday. Sunday, you want that to be the toughest day. If you look at the final groups on Sunday, it was really hard. Nobody broke par in the last three groups. Now, before you say, well, Tommy Fleetwood shot 63, had a really good look at 62. Look at what happened throughout the week. The low scores and everybody that knew everybody that was there knew this. The low scores were available in the morning. That's when the course was more receptive, that's when the wind was down. You know, on Sunday, the marine layer stayed in. Again, that moisture stayed in the air. It clears up in the afternoon, it gets brutally tough. And why this didn't matter. Why it didn't matter that Tommy Fleetwood shot 63 was the golf course had done its job. There weren't 40 guys within six shots and Tommy Fleetwood's 63 could all of a sudden win him the tournament. Tommy Fleetwood was so far back because this golf course had identified that he was not a contender. There were four guys that could win this golf tournament on Sunday and they were awesome players. You obviously had Wyndham Clark, Rory McIlroy, Scotty Scheffler, and Ricky Fowler. Those were the only four guys who had a chance to win on Sunday. I'm sorry. If you think somebody else did, they didn't. I think everybody in the field knew they didn't have a shot. There was no way someone was coming from six back on this golf course and leapfrogging those four players in a late tee time. Sure, Tommy Fleetwood could shoot 63 and surge up the leaderboard. But he was too far back because he hadn't played well enough at a golf course that identified he hadn't played well enough early in the week. And and that's the thing about this golf course that I think needs to be remembered. It gave people enough space to play, and it really identified who was playing best. I, you know, I think LACC has gotten a lot of flack for scoring. I think that's unfounded and and wrong. You know, this, is, this was a great tournament of really, like, wonderful competition from a golf standpoint where they do deserve some grief. And, and the USDA shares this probably is on the fan experience on the atmosphere. It la- it lacked a lot of pop, not having any fans around the, fr- and this is a hard, the hard situation. Some, it was tight, but one of the reasons that it was so tight is that all the back tees they're using, you know, if they don't have to use all these back tees, there's all of a sudden a lot more space for grandstands, more tickets can be sold. But also, you know, the corporate aspect of this, like more than half, you can't have a tournament where more than half the tickets go to corporate like that, that, that shouldn't happen. And, um, if you can contrast this with last year's U S open last year's U S open was probably my favorite tournament of the year. I don't know. The open championship was, uh, was great too. Those, those were two sensational tournaments. But if I think about last year's U S open, which was a sensational tournament, that atmosphere was unbelievable. I think the competition and the way the golf course kind of selected players was better this year. And I thought the country club was a great U.S. Open venue. So I think if you look at it from the the way the golf course has tested players, I think this year's U.S. Open was a little bit better. But then the atmosphere of last year's U.S. Open, it was electric on the weekend. It was awesome. That one would be just so exponentially higher than than LACC. I think they're both really good uh, U.S. Opens, and I think you know the uh, I'm I'm excited for when they go back to LACC in twenty odd years. Obviously, they're all booked up. We can talk about that another time. But Riviera just got uh, the 2031 U.S. Open. That'll be interesting. You know, in, in, uh, in eight years, we're talking about eight years, but it'll be interesting to see how that one's set up given the complaints uh, of LACC. It seems like that is an even smaller site. So let's talk about the four guys that could win the tournament on Sunday and kind of where they go from here. Uh, the champion, Wyndham Clark. I, I can't believe the discourse on, uh, on Wyndham Clark about, I mean, this guy played great golf. Look at who he beat. He beat Rory. He beat Scotty, and he beat Ricky Fowler. He beat two players that are often considered the best player in the game right now in Rory and Scotty, and then the other guy is one of the best modern players without a major. So Wyndham Clark played great. He's on a meteoric rise. He's up to 13th in the OWGR. I think what's being a little bit overlooked in the disappointment that Rory didn't win is... Who knows what Wyndham Clark could become? He's got all of the ingredients to be a very, very, very good player on the PGA Tour and in the world of golf. He's super long. He's got a great short game. He's a great putter. And his, his approach plays improving. Like, that's what you look for. He's a guy that can do everything. So you start to think, like, and we do this every major where we start to project out what a player might end up with. You know, famously, like, after Sergio won the the Masters, it was like, is this going to open the floodgates? Are we going to have all these Sergio major wins? No, no. It, you know, this, we almost always err on the too high side. But with Wyndham Clark, like, let's just say a low bar, I probably think a low bar is five wins in his career in a Ryder Cup. Just to give that some context, Gary Woodland, this is not meant to be a drive-by. Gary Woodland, a U.S. Open at Pebble Beach that nobody really complained about. He, he's he got four wins in his career. Um, so I don't think this is going to be a, a disastrous U.S. Open winner. On the high end, I think his skill set really translates well. He could be a top 20 player for five, six years, maybe more. Maybe he's Kind of like an older Brooks Kepka where he wins, he picks up, not Brooks. I mean, he's not going to win. I don't think he's going to win five majors, but maybe he picks off another one. His game certainly fits a lot of golf courses. So Wyndham Clark, I think, obviously, a huge winner from the week and somebody that people should be excited about. I think he he gave a really good press conference where he talked a lot about his process, what he's gone through, and I, I love his approach with no coach. Um of how he's just trying to get back to neutral. It was, it was a phenomenal interview where he just talked about, Hey, if I'm drawing the ball, I'm trying to hit cuts to get back to neutral. Uh, If I'm cutting the ball, I'm trying to get draw hit draws to get back to neutral. And I've never played better. I mean, I think that's a, a really interesting way. And we need more of this in the game of golf for the younger generation to see, Hey, You don't need your swing micro analyzed after every single shot. Like, you don't need that. You know, speaking of that, like, what was interesting is, like, you know, Wyndham Clark, Rory didn't have a coach there. Scotty, Randy Smith wasn't there, I don't think, on the weekends. You know, three of those guys, and I don't think Ricky had a coach there. The four guys that had a chance to win didn't have coaches on the range with them this weekend. All right. The gut wrenching second place, Rory McElroy. Uh I think this one this one was tough. He um he played well enough to win. He certainly played well enough to win. If he had a good putting week, he wins. Um I think the the my criticism for Rory after the after Oak Hill was that he was too sloppy. He wasn't really sloppy. Um You know, I think that when you watch Rory McIlroy play major championship golf, you often get frustrated with the weak bogeys, the weak, you know, just the giveaways. And seemingly there is always one or two in every round. This week was a lot different. I think there were really three giveaways. And and I think one of them is tough to, to point out as a giveaway. He had two, three putts. The one on eight on Sunday was really bad. That needs to be a birdie right there. He's in the playoff. Um, I think the the 14th, the wedge shot on Sunday that everybody's going to focus on. um, That was, that was not great. I mean, he was, he was a yard from it being really great, a really great shot, but he was, you know, also had five yards of space beyond the flag where that has to be the miss miss has to be past the flag. You have to have a 20 footer. And I think he, he gave himself a lot of those types of looks on a very hard golf course. And in the, Nobody wants to hear this, but the simple fact of, of that tournament was Rory didn't make anything on the weekend, nothing. He made no putts, and sometimes that that's what golf comes down to. One guy makes putts, the other guy didn't, and Rory didn't make putts. I think the, uh, the one other place that you can look at and say, man, that was a missed opportunity it was Saturday. He three-putted on 13. That hole just kind of was a bugaboo, I think, for him. Uh, in general, he bogeyed it two of the four days. But, you know, where does he go from here? I think he's got to come away from this feeling great about his game and future major championships. I think he is, um, I think he's cleaned up a lot of the things that kind of made him struggle early in the year, uh, especially with majors. He's driving the ball great. I think what I would like to see from him is a real dedication to the wedge play. Um, it's obviously been kind of a thorn in his side. We saw it running into the tournament where, where the wedge play has been a struggle, and we saw it pop up on 14. I think he was pretty solid outside of that. Major championships are about opportunities and being there, and I think like this is going to parlay into Scotty. but Rory's now at the point where he knows how hard these things are to win and makes it a little bit tougher, um, but he's getting himself and now this is two days two years in a row with uh St Andrews and here where he is on the back nine and he just he needs a couple putts to drop and he just didn't have a couple putts drop and i think we can overanalyze everything but that's the the really the basics of of this for him Scotty Scheffler what a player i mean it is extraordinary what he's doing this season in terms of consistency he hasn't finished outside the top 20 and forever um it's amazing to watch a guy I, i watched scotty his entire round on thursday and then i watched his entire round on sunday and i caught obviously him intermittently throughout the rest of the tournament a lot of nights i was watching the telecast after the after the golf was over scotty contended in this major when he didn't really have it he was really slow out of the gates on Thursday. Sunday, he missed a bunch of short putts, and you start to add up the the totals, and you're like, "Wow, he missed two or three short putts on Sunday, and he finished three shots out of the lead um, out of out of being in a playoff." Factor in he he opened the tournament on the most ideal scoring conditions ever. He was shot two over on the front nine. He has to feel a little bit like, "Man, this is crazy that I'm not winning." given how many, how well I'm playing as a whole a body of work. He obviously won the masters in 2021 in, in record setting fashion. Uh, it was it, not record setting, but like he was dominant. There was a dominant, dominant win. Um, he has been in contention basically in every single major since, uh, he wasn't really in, in the, in the open at, at St. Andrews, but, Really, like he's been a factor at all these majors and leading into that master's win, he was a factor in a ton of major championships. Like, this guy is built for major championships. That being said, what we just talked about with Rory, the one worry I have about Scotty is like, is he starting to learn how hard it is to win these majors? You kind of, and I think like Colin Morikawa is in this state right now. And I think it's, that's the tough thing. Like you want these young players to keep picking them off. Uh, Brooks just dealt with this where he had the injuries and everything. And all of a sudden it went from making majors look easy to they were really, really hard. And you get like kind of a mental block. And I think with the putter, that's that reappeared on Sunday. He was pretty solid throughout the week. The putter has been a problem, but, Winning major championships is really hard, and when you know it's really hard, it just makes it tougher. I think there's a, a naive uh, nature that some of these young players now have to winning majors and winning golf tournaments, and it's it's hard when you lose that mindset. And Scotty, I, I expect him to contend at the Open, and I think he's probably by far the best player in the world right now, just based off everybody's looking to be consistent. He's the most consistent player. Um, hopefully he's not developing any of this scar tissue. Cause that's, that's I think the one thing that could slow him down in major championships. All right, Ricky Fowler. He, he had a great week. I think he was obviously the story of the week until Sunday. And uh, it was, it was amazing. To feel the energy, you know, there wasn't a ton of energy out at LACC, but where there was a lot of energy was with Ricky Fowler. I followed him on Saturday um, extensively, and and you know, you could just feel the the graciousness of uh, or Friday afternoon, the graciousness of the crowd. You know, they just you could sense that everybody was pulling for Rick. He's had an awesome year. If you go back and look after last year's playoffs. He was 167th in the world rankings. Right now, he's 35th. He's on a meteoric rise. He is playing some of the best golf we've seen him play. I mean, the best golf we've seen him play in effectively five years. I think the question about Rick coming out of this is, is he going to have another shot at the major? Was this his best shot? Um, I think he's got chances at the open. I think that's going to be his best chance moving forward. I don't think... The U S open is his best chance. I don't think the masters is his best chance. I think the open championships moving forward, a place where distance isn't the end all be all at open championships experience. I think matters a lot you have to hit shots in the wind. And, you know, I think that's where we're going to see Ricky um, potentially have chances to win majors, but this was an awesome performance. I feel feel for the guy. I mean, you could tell he just didn't have it on Sunday. Um, but this was a great tournament. And, I, I, you know, it's amazing to have him back in the game. I always, like, one of my favorite things about golf is watching guys come out of the gutter. And I think Ricky Fowler, um, one of the most popular players, one of the players of, like, the 2010s, I think you'd have him on the short list of the most memorable impactful players um in a decade he he got it going again it was awesome to be there and awesome to see it and uh I hope we get a little bit more Ricky I'm not sure how much more but um it looks like the game is getting into a really really good spot so without further ado I just wanted to wrap up the the us open it was an awesome tournament I uh you know I it just made it with everything going on in golf it, it just one of the things that's sad is when when major championship season is coming to end and we're getting close to that with the open next month. This was a really fun tournament and it was great to have the focus of the week be on the golf and not everything else that's going on in professional golf. Now for a quick word from our sponsor, Echo. Echo makes the most comfortable golf shoes in the world. They just wanna help, their brand purpose is they just wanna help golfers simply enjoy their game. Our shoes are made for all golfers, allowing them to have a great time on the course. Golfers don't need to worry about their shoes, about traction, wet feet, or comfort. I mean, this is a, you gotta take care of your feet. It's the most important i think part of golf i think most people that listen to this podcast probably love walking there's nothing worse than having uncomfortable shoes that deter you from walking or make the walk more difficult than it is echo shoes i've used them uh good portions of my life i will tell you there i've never put on a more comfortable pair of shoes than echo golf shoes um i think the amazing stat is 90 percent of golfers uh who buy echoes buy a second pair that's the best uh selling point you can make people that buy these buy more they've got a wide range of styles and if you're interested go to us.echo.com that's us.ecco.com slash tfe and you can check out all their shoes there thanks and now to josh pettit All right. Tell me about your recent trip to Colorado. Uh, well, I um,
1: I unearthed a few interesting artifacts um, that were given to me from the the closest thing to a living heir to Dr. Alistair McKenzie. Um, it's from a woman named Joan Haddock, who is the uh, she's the widow of McKenzie's step grandson Ray Haddock, and they were the ones that found the manuscript for the Spirit of St. Andrews in 1992. Um, And then it was published in, I think, 94, 95. Um, She gave me Alistair McKenzie's Hickory Clubs that their family had kept all these years um, from Pasatiempo when he passed away. And um, it's a pretty good story. Those clubs have actually traveled all around the country in a caravan in the late 30s and up until about 1940, their their family basically um, were, were living out of a motorhome and traveling a lot, homeschooled their kids, and kept all that stuff with them in this little, like what would have been the equivalent of a Winnebago in those days. Um, and then eventually it made it out to the Denver area in Colorado where it's been all their stuff for... About yeah, forty years or so. No, maybe longer. Like since about nineteen seventy. Um, so yeah, I've got three sets of clubs, um, two golf bags, and uh, it's pretty pretty cool. Very special.
0: Some some cool cl- the clubs that uh, were were in famous pictures, and uh, then another one that was what, the putter.
1: Yeah, so there is a photo of Mackenzie standing on the fifteenth green at Cypress point pointing out with this putter to the Pacific ocean. And that putter is one of the putters that, you know, I have a high resolution version of that photo. I could zoom way in on the putter head and it's very obvious that that's the same putter that was in one of the bags. Um, and then there's another putter that the story is that Bobby Jones gave him probably in 1931 or 32 when they were working on Augusta. That's a Calamity Jane replica that was made by Spalding and um, he gave out a bunch of those to to friends of his. So Mackenzie got one and, and that's part of the, the set.
0: How, how did you get ena- so enamored with Alistair Mackenzie? Um,
1: well, it was sort of a gradual process, I suppose. Started in 2003, 20 years ago, I was hired, um, as a young lad on the construction crew at the metal club and uh, they were in the process of doing a restoration project with Mike DeBreeze. And uh, I, you know, it was just a grundoon on the crew, uh, you know, swinging a shovel and a pick and pushing a rake. And uh, but I loved it. And How old were you at the time? 19. I just turned 19. So, I mean, I'd started working at courses when I was 15 in high school and worked at several courses at that point, but had never really been... That engaged in golf architecture in any in any way. Um, I had done some maintenance at a different course, but um, this was just such a unique process that we were sort of trying to unearth. There was sort of an archaeological component to it, you know, unearth this Mackenzie course that had been sitting there and um, all those all those decades. And so, under the supervision of Mike, just learned a lot about the process of. Trying to reclaim these old greens and these bunkers and, um, you know, reclaiming the, the, the width and the fairways to, um, you know, get back to the old strategy and providing the different shot angles. So that, that just, I don't know, that really fascinated me. And um, that, that led me toward um, a couple of years later working at the Valley Club in Montecito where they were getting ready to do a restoration project. And um, they basically let me spearhead the historical research component to to that, and so started that. That's when I really started digging deep into research and really fell in love with that process, which is sort of different, or quite a bit different than what I was doing in Metal Club. But um, you know, just in my spare time, I was working on the crew there, but in the afternoons and evenings. I was just full time doing research and collecting stuff and digging through the the archives in the basement of the Valley Club, and this process of of researching and curating this horse historical content was it was kind of thrilling to me, and uh, sort of fell in love with that. And so then we we did a restoration project at the Valley Club in two thousand seven with with Tom Doke. And, um, but I, I developed this love for research and, uh, just continued doing that in my, my spare time, you know, anytime I could go into libraries, going into archives. I started gradually building a network of historians and archivists and researchers all around the world that, um, we'd sort of help each other find different things. And so I've been doing it ever since, and, you know, just kind of fell in love with that.
0: I imagine it's kind of like pulling a thread. It's like a mystery, right? Where you're you're trying to solve for something. And in and, and this case, if you're considering like Mackenzie, it's just trying to find, I mean, there's so much stuff that isn't around, right?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So it actually really started, you know, the impetus was this routing plan that I found that was in the original prospectus for the Valley Club. And it's different than the routing plan that you often see with the Valley Club. This was an earlier one. from 1928. And that routing plan had a lot more detail and was just super interesting. And there was a guy's name on it who, who drew it. And um, that was, by, I started out by trying to find that guy and find any other material, because in order to draw that map, he would have had, you know, my, my theory of the case is, he would have had a lot of material from McKenzie and Hunter to be able to draw all that. You know, he was a draftsman as it turns out. And, um, so, you know, really what I was after were, were green sketches, notes, correspondence, photographs, anything like that from McKenzie and Hunter. Um, and so that, that was sort of the impetus and then, you know, collecting, that got me into collecting photos, you know, trying to identify features that had been lost. Um, but yeah, it was like, like you said, you pull out a thread and then, you know, it's like you go down that rabbit hole and you just never stop.
0: When you think back to that Meadow Club, is there a moment you, you obviously, you know, you're working, you're 19, you, you're like, this is cool. Is there like a, a specific moment of that project that you remember most vividly of like, I love this? Um,
1: well, there was a few moments, but one that comes to mind, I guess, uh, we were working on the 14th green, which is a par three. And, uh, that was sort of Mackenzie's take on a Redan. And, um, we were floating the green. I was pushing like the, you know, with a rake basically floating out the finish grade. And I just remember, you know, Mike was sort of supervising and showing me, you know, how to, to float this green out by hand and just, the detailed nature of finishing that was, was so intricate. And, um, for some reason, I just, I realized then like, wow, I love this. This is, this is such a cool process. Like it, you know, the, the detail required to do it just right. And the craftsmanship, um, was just something I really enjoyed. And, um, that was, that was just one moment that sticks out. And, and Mike, Mike said something to me at the time, like, wow, I've never seen anybody rake so precisely as you're raking right now, or something like that. And I was like, wow, this is,
0: this is pretty cool, man. <laughs> um, so you got fascinated in the research and the life of Alistair McKenzie. And at, at what point do you decide that you want to put together a new book on McKenzie?
1: Well, that started initially... I got the idea in, I think it was 2016 or 17. Um, You know, in 2017, the LA times did a big feature on Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, celebrating his 150th birthday. Frank Lloyd Wright was a contemporary of McKenzie, you know, was born in 1867 and um, the Frank Lloyd Wright foundation and some other people put together a, a big exhibition and, I thought, wow, it'd be really cool to do something like that for Alistair McKenzie. And I was thinking toward the future. McKenzie was born in 1870. So 2020 was McKenzie's 150th. And so I had a number of ideas floating around where like how how I could sort of commemorate that. Um, And even prior to that, I had been thinking about different concepts for a book just as a way of kind of showcasing all of this material that I've collected over the years. I wanted to do something with it, you know, get out into the public. And um, so that was a process in and of itself, trying to figure out the right concept for the book. Um, but that all kind of came together in this, yeah, 2017-ish, and then started working on it then, and, it, you know, it took it was a three-year project.
0: With the book, I, I mean, I think like the... I think there's something magical now about books, especially well put together books, because they're they become like kind of like it becomes a piece of your house, really, when there's a certain and with your book, Mackenzie Reader, I feel like there it was a very, very intentional style in which the book was created. Um, from the typeface to the the way the pages feel to the cover. Um, can you walk us through just the little details of how you wanted this book to look and feel?
1: Yeah, well, that's very insightful. Um,
0: you're right. Yeah, I, you know, all
1: the details I thought had to be just right. And so the, the thinking was, I wanted to try to create a book that Mackenzie himself would be proud of, or or put another way, if he were alive today and he was putting together a book, what might it look like? And that was kind of the, the driving force for for what this book should look like and so right off the bat i made the decision you know i i didn't want this to be a coffee table book i wanted it to be something that looked and felt like something that would have maybe been produced 100 years ago um and at the same time i wanted it to be interactive because there's so much rich content in the book photographs and sketches and routing plans and i wanted that to be sort of like an interactive experience that the reader could enjoy so trying to fit all that into a small portable book that you could bring onto an airplane or carry around um that took a lot of figuring out how to do that and um that's what that's what led me to doing this this thing where there's these what are called gatefolds you know these big pages that fold out from the book that really showcase those those maps. Um, but yeah, the, the, the look and the feel is just, was really important that that all the details were correct and, um, people in the printing world, you know, reflect back on 2020 and 2021, really the last three years, uh, the paper industry has been, just was really hit bad with by by COVID and supply chain issues. And so getting paper is an absolute nightmare when I was doing this book. Um, it's gotten a little better in the last year or so, but, um, I, the, the struggle that I went through just to source the paper itself was, um, was quite a story. Um, but I, I was just adamant that it
0: was the story.
1: (laughs) Um, well, basically i I worked with at the end of the day it was five different printers and um, you know three of them essentially said we can't do this because we can't get paper and so I sort of said, well, I'm gonna get the paper myself from a paper company so I learned how the paper industry operates, which is pretty interesting. it's all done um, on monthly quotas so, essentially there was paper that was actually identified that was sitting in a warehouse in LA that they couldn't sell me because they didn't have the allocation in their monthly budget to be able to allocate that paper for me, even though no one else was buying it. So what I ended up doing was going to like some executives at this paper company and, <laughs> and saying like, you've got six cartons of this paper that I need that's sitting in this warehouse. And no one else is buying it. And I need you to increase your allocation so that my local paper distributor is allowed to sell it to me. Um, and so that that whole process took several months, and I actually had to do it twice um, because we did a second printing.
0: It's like it's got that paper. I, I, you know, I, I've really enjoyed the book. It's like yeah, there's like a texture to it where you, you know, it's not. It's just like it's you feel it, there's. It's weird to say this, and I don't want people to think I'm like a weird human being, but like there's a satisfaction to turning a page.
1: Yeah. um, It's funny you say that because friends of mine have known for a long time before I ever did a book that I've had this weird paper fetish for a long time. (laughs) I love really cool crafty paper. A lot of it is like European, French, Italian style papers. Um, I don't know. I just have this kind of fascination with it. So that paper that you're talking about is, is referred to that there's all these different textures in, in paper lingo uh, that's referred to as a vellum finish. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I wanted. You know, it's like, that's, if you had a book a hundred years ago, that's the kind of paper they were using. There wasn't this, they had some, but it, it was pretty rare, like the glossy, shiny kind of smooth paper. And so, um, but then there's all these other components too, with like the technology now that because this was a short run of books, it was printed on a digital press as opposed to an offset press. And so with a digital press, you have to use a certain type of paper. So the ink adheres. So it's not like you can just use any paper, whereas with an offset press, um, you could use any paper you want. So there was like this whole process of just narrowing down my options, finding it, getting the paper, and then sort and then delivering it myself to a printer that could then take it and print the books for me. So I, I had to like facilitate all of that.
0: It sounds like a fun process, but I think the final, uh, the pro- final pro uh, product shows how much time and effort was into it. I, I you know, I think anybody that picks up the book, it, what's in the book? How, how did you go about creating the concept? Obviously there's been much written about Alistair McKenzie. Alistair McKenzie wrote a bunch himself. How did you want to go about creating your own unique little space in the Alistair McKenzie, um, what you called um, discography of, of books, I guess what would portfolio of books?
1: Yeah. Well um, I, I purposely didn't want to do a biography, you know, that's, that's been done, um, you know, Ray Haddock and Tom Doak and um, they, they put together a biography that's a really nice book and, I didn't want to just kind of rehash that same concept. So I spent a lot of time thinking about the best way to um, curate all this material that I had and, and present it. And what was the driving concept? And um, I got a great idea from a book. I was in a used bookstore in Pacific Grove. And this must have been 2016 or 17. And I picked up this book for like a dollar that was called The Lincoln Reader and it was all about abraham lincoln and it was like a abraham lincoln historian had curated all this material that were like speeches and writings that lincoln had written and then also he had um contemporary people other historians you know there's a whole network of abraham lincoln historians um write their own little bits and he he you know he collated all that together into this book called the Lincoln reader. And that was like an aha moment for me. Like, wow, this is a pretty cool concept. I could do something similar with all this Mackenzie material that I've collected. And it worked so well because I had had dozens, literally dozens. I've probably got, it's not, they're not all in the book. Um, but I've got probably at least 40 articles that McKenzie had written in all these different publications
0: like golfdom and yeah, you know, exactly. American golfer, right? Different magazines, golf and, illustrated, and,
1: yeah, right. All these, and so, um, I collected all these articles that were a lot of his writings, and and some of those writings are sort of rehashed and kind of they're sort of uh, re- reworked for parts of his book, you know, The Spirit of St. Andrews, and then there's some of it that's sort of kind of, um, a little bit in his first book called golf architecture. So there's some redundancy to the writing, but, but they are different articles. And so just collecting all the stuff, I thought, wow, you know, a lot of this stuff that, you know, people that are interested in McKenzie that have written the, you know, they've, they've read those two books, the spirit of St. Andrews and golf architecture, you know, there's a lot more to it that he wrote. That's not in those two books. And so the thinking was, okay, let's curate all these articles into a book and, you know, and with those articles, oftentimes, were a lot of these really cool photos. So most of those photos in the book are are sequenced pretty much as they were in the articles when they were published in those different publications. Um, and then there's some other stuff I added in. But, um, and then I also took this idea from the Lincoln Reader of having some other contemporary historians do a little short piece um, on in this case, Mackenzie. And so that's why the the back of the book, there's a little section called Some Thoughts on Mackenzie. And uh, I had several people, you know, Jeff Shackelford and Mike DeVries and Mike Clayton and, um, you know, Pedro Cassio down in Argentina, all these guys, I asked them to contribute short little pieces, you know, from, from their perspective as being kind of Mackenzie historians in their own right. And and that was a way of showcasing a bunch of other content that didn't fit in what's the majority of the book that are all those different articles.
0: Mm-hmm. With those little articles, do you have a, do you have a favorite uh, in there uh, of of the little articles that Mackenzie wrote?
1: Ones that he wrote, or ones yeah, that other people ones wrote. Ones that
0: he wrote. Um, I really like the one.
1: Yeah, there's a couple, but I really like the one uh, about Augusta called "Plans for the Ideal Golf Course." Because conceptually it's it's pretty deep and and really fascinating to me and and he talks about you know hole by hole wh- what was the motivation the the motivating concept where they where they got the concepts for those holes he and Bobby Jones a lot of them were from St Andrews and other links courses that they that they really admired and so um, and he talks about how they weren't replicating those holes and how it would be a You know, it'd be a a fool's errand to try to copy any holes, but they were taking the concept of those holes and applying them to the landscape that they had in Augusta and doing their own rendition on them. And then, and and he, and he thought that he and Bobby Jones, they were really, really proud of what they had come up with the collection of holes. And so much so that he talks about how he had hoped that one day somebody would look at all these holes at Augusta as not not templates, but um, as as concepts in their own right, that people would then be inspired to sort of pay homage to at different golf courses. So that's just like sort of this lineage of of golf design of these different concepts that started in the British Isles and were you know, applied to this landscape in Augusta. And then McKenzie hoped that other people would be inspired by those and apply them to, to other developments in in the States and around the world. And so I just love that, that, that article plans for the ideal golf course. And it just features just the beautiful watercolor routing map.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I really enjoyed that section and it'll probably be something that I revisit every year before the masters. Um, I think one of the things like one of the things like similar that I really liked and, and got me thinking about architecture was like his, uh, ideal short hole discussion. Yeah. And it was, I mean, I I feel like he was taking some shots too, (laughs) (laughs) Like you know, like this idea of like a short hole that's just surrounded by a bunker, you know? Yeah. Versus a short hole that provides different routes of play. And if you think about McKenzie, then I started to think about McKenzie short holes and how often, so many of them have the ability to have a ball run up and absolutely. And, um, you know, he, he was, I mean, it was fascinating how obsessed he was with the, um, and, and and with good reason with the idea of alternate routes and the, you know, he, you can, I feel like you can't read his writing without him mentioning the old course at least once in an article And like the idea of like, and it makes it like a short hole is so hard for a lower trajectory player, you know, if it's just surrounded by sand and there's no option for running it up. And one of the holes he referenced was the six at Augusta, right? Especially in those days too, the
1: equipment and, you know, yeah, it was, it was much, much more of a ground game
0: still in those days. Mm hmm. So it was. It, I I really enjoyed that. And then, do you have a favorite uh, uh, guest essay? I don't. I don't want to put you on the spot, but just maybe a favorite topic.
1: Sure. No. No. I I I could. I'd love to answer that. And uh, the reason why is because of the guest essays, the other contributors, um, they were mostly contemporary people. But there was a few in there that weren't. You know, there's Herb Grafis, who was a longtime editor of different golf publications, and. Um, my favorite, though, of those was written by his sister, Marion, Marion McKenzie, who was also a doctor. And I loved it so much. It's called A Sister's Tribute. And she wrote it as a response to an obituary that was published in the Yorkshire Evening Post right after he died, you know, uh, January 6th of 1934. And it was just a, a way it was her way of saying You know, you guys all know about Mackenzie because of his career in golf course architecture, but I want to give you a little bit more insight into him as a person and his other interests and uh, from from his sister's perspective. And so originally I had that in the back of the book with all the other guest essays, but I liked it so much that I moved it to the front of the book. And it's kind of like a a second forward. Um, You know, Ben Crenshaw was nice enough to write the forward for the book, but I had to put that in there as well. Cause I thought it just sets up the book so well. So that's my favorite of the,
0: yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great little piece of writing. Um, you know, one thing that people bring up all the time is, is the, is Mackenzie's camouflage. Um, can you, uh, speak to how influential that idea has been in golf architecture?
1: How, how influential it's been in golf architecture more broadly or, f- or for him for and his more career, broadly,
0: like from him to where, you know, so what what that idea brought, and you know the influence on him it had, but then more importantly, right? You know where it's taken. You know, I feel like you know it is a forefront idea in golf architecture. You know,
1: yeah. Um, it was. You know, people often talk about you know Mackenzie. He was had this you know these experiences in in the military. You know, he was in the Boer War, and that's where he first started observing the Boers and their use of camouflage and really admired it. And that's when he, you know, so he's in, you know, he's in, he's in the Boer War. He was a surgeon and he's looking at this and he's thinking, wow, these concepts could be applied to building golf courses. That's when he started thinking about that. Um, and then again, in World War One, he, you know, he, he did a lot, you know, what, what people don't know is that, yeah. He wrote a little bit about camouflage. There's a couple articles in my book that he wrote about camouflage, but his wealth of writings on the subject of camouflage actually is probably broader than his writings on golf. Um, the stuff that I have, which I will be releasing at some point, I'm trying to figure out, I'm probably actually going to do a whole, whole second book. That's just about camouflage. Cause he wrote so much about camouflage. Um, there's enough material for a full book and that was really really influential to you know yeah to, to his philosophies when he started building these courses i think that i think the impetus was this idea that um you know the novel idea for him was i want to try to build really good link style golf on inland terrain that's not really conducive to golf especially in those days so in those days all the best links you know, were seaside courses built in the sand dunes and British Isles for the most part. And he thought, well, how can I take those ideas and build them on sort of flat, boring, heavy soils, you know, inland terrain. And, um, you know, he started doing that at Alwood in 1907 and then Moortown right. right after mm-hmm. it. And so his thinking was like, well, I've got to develop some interest and in, on these sort of what are sort of relatively boring pieces of land, and, um, and I think that's when he he started testing his ideas of of, of how can I build some of these landforms and um, you know manipulate the landscape to provide strategic value and to um, there, there's another component too that he was trying to um, he was trying to subconsciously affect golfers so you know he was trying to make holes visually appear more difficult than they actually play and so that was one of his like i think big tricks was like how do i trick the eye how do i make this bunker complex that's maybe 70 80 yards short of the green look like it's surrounding the green so that when you're hitting an approach shot in from 160 yards out it feels way more daunting than it actually is
0: and um, I mean, there's all over the place that some of this courses, like one that jumps to mind is like the fourth hole at Tiempo. There's a bunker in the fairway on the left side that looks like it's pressed up against the green, but it's actually like 80 yards short. Right. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Two at Metal Club is another good example of that. Um, he did that all over the place. And because, yeah, you know, he wasn't I think most people know he wasn't a great golfer. Yeah. So, you know, some of these other guys in those days were actually really, really good golfers. Donald Russ was a great golfer. Um,
0: I, Tillinghast, was, Tillinghast a great was a great player. Flynn you know? was a great player. Like, almost, you know, most of them. I mean, McDonald yeah. was competing for, you know, national championships. And- right.
1: And he was always like a, you know, a double digit handicap up until the last couple of years of his life. He was, you know, maybe got down to like a seven or eight, nine handicap at the best, but he was never a great golfer. And so I think that's actually one of the things that benefited him the most was, you know, this idea that I want to build golf courses that are super fun and enjoyable, um, and inspirational for me to play, and for people that are like, you know, not not great golfers and for beginners. But then also at the same time, try to make it as difficult as possible for like your scratch player. And that's what going back to your comment about having all these different alternate routes. You know, he wanted to have as many routes as possible to the hole. And, um, you know, one of the great drawings that exemplifies that is the sketch he did for the Lido hole, mm-hmm. you know, which, uh, has now, now been recreated out in, uh, you know, Wisconsin. So, um, yeah, the, the camo- going back to the camouflage, that was, I think that was by far the most influential concept that, that motivated his work that he did. And you see it in everywhere, you know, it, it like from bunkers from one angle, they're either in, in your face and then you go past them and you look backwards and you can't even see them. They just blend in. And that's that's one of the tests with like, if you're actually restoring some of these courses. And I often tell people, you know, the tie-ins are so extremely important because if you go past a bunker and then you look backwards and you could still see the landform and it sticks out, well, then you didn't build it right.
0: With, uh, with Mackenzie, I think something that always gets brought up is his associates in America it was uh Robert Hunter and Perry Maxwell and uh in Australia's is, is Morcum um how did he go about cultivating these Alex associates Russell. yeah Alex Russell too down and then
1: Marion Holland's too in, in the states mm-hmm. yeah um and uh and guys like Wendell Miller and Luther Kuntz who was Wendell Miller's guy that he brought down to Argentina and built all the stuff and, and Luther ended up staying down there and live there for the rest of his life. Um, th- this is an excellent point. Um, this is like one of the, the knacks that Mackenzie had. I think that I, I can't explain how he did it, but he definitely had a knack for identifying like-minded people that were talented, that he could convey his concepts to what he was trying to build And then entrust them to build it and then also put their own flair on it too. He wasn't, you know, he, he, he enjoyed having the input of these other guys like Robert Hunter, like Alex Russell, like Perry Maxwell, which is why you can identify, you know, stylistic differences of these different courses. Um, You know, he liked that collaboration.
0: Yeah, like the style of, of Crystal Downs is drastically different from the style of Pasatiempo. Exactly, right.
1: And, and then you go to like rural Melbourne and yeah. it's a very, very different style. And so he, I think he really enjoyed that. He, but he had this knack of finding really talented people um, that were like-minded when it came to golf strategy, golf design, and and were talented and he entrusted them um and that that's a skill set because you know it's like you're only as good as the people you surround yourself with and he understood that really well and um and he was traveling a lot you know it's it's amazing if you look at a, a calendar you look at the timeline of of how he was traveling around the world he was traveling a lot and so uh, some of these properties never he got back to and he entrusted these guys to execute his his vision and um in all cases he just had stellar talented people who could all be architects on their own. Right. And some of them, you know, a lot of them did do stuff on their own like Perry Maxwell, obviously. Um, and, uh, and so that was, that was a very important skill that he had was being able to identify those people.
0: Um, what would you say the influence of, uh, Harry Colt was on, on Alistair McKenzie? Obviously when he started his career, he was partnered with Harry Colt and, uh, and uh, Allison at that time, what was uh, what would you say would uh, was Colt's role in, in McKenzie's life?
1: You know, I, I don't claim to be like that much of an expert on Colt, but what I do know is that when he was trying to build Alwoodley, the the founding members they wanted Colts sort of uh, they wanted Colt to sign off on what McKenzie was doing. And so there was definitely a collaborative effort between him and Colt on Aldwickley and on Moore town. and then they established a partnership like you said after that um I I think McKenzie recognized that in those days in Europe uh, Colt was the only one who was building the type of golf that McKenzie wanted to on these inland sites on these heavy clay these these heavy soil sites and um You know, I, I just look back when I'm looking at material that I'm researching, when I find old photos of Harry Colt stuff from, you know, from England or from mainland Europe, a lot of it is like, I have to do a double take and and oftentimes think, wow, is that something Mackenzie built, you know? And so it's, it's just clear that stylistically they were on the same page. And, um, and so they were, you know, naturally collaborated well together. And I, I think you know, there had to be some influence for sure. Um, and I, I think it was just my, my sense. It was mostly just affirming, you know, Colt was kind of affirming a lot of McKenzie's ideas. Like McKenzie kind of had these off the wall ideas that people thought were pretty crazy, actually, in those days. And I think Harry Colt was the guy that sort of affirmed them like, no, you're on to something here.
0: And uh, this
1: this can work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um- with uh, with the Mackenzie designs, would uh, do you have you? Are there any designs that you're dying to see that you haven't seen, and um, and what of the lost designs do you most wish you could see?
1: Yeah, the, the two I want to see the most that I haven't are one Augusta and two Royal Melbourne. Um, so those you know, those are definitely the top two on my list. Um, of the lost courses. There's, there's a few, there's a few buckets. So, okay. In, in one bucket, you got courses that he designed that I have plans for. Some of them are in this book, uh, that were never actually built or they weren't, the plan wasn't followed in some cases. And so to see those built or see those come to life, that would be a dream. That's something that I've, I've been actively working on with, with different people. Um,
0: what, what would be an example of that?
1: Well, uh, a, a guy, I don't know if you know David Dell. Yes. Um is uh, he's the guy that found the El Boca plant in Argentina. And so he's been trying to build that, you know, I just met with him a couple of weeks ago out in Colorado. Uh, but he's been trying to build that El Book course. You know, initially he had a site um, north of Austin.
0: Yeah, I remembered it being in Texas too. Was-
1: yeah. And uh, that fell through um, but uh, that that's like right up there. And then there's another course that to me, the the most incredible course that McKenzie ever designed, maybe the most incredible course ever designed that never got built was a course called El Nautico San Isidro, in what well, would have been in Argentina. And I, the plan for that's in, in this book. Um, and that was an interesting project because that was McKenzie's, th- that was his opportunity to go, Full out, like if I have a blank canvas and can create all this from scratch, what would I do?
0: It was and, right at the same time that, uh, at, right after the Lido had been built, correct?
1: It was, it was a little, it was a little after that. So this yeah. was 1931.
0: Cause he referenced that yeah. this, something like this had happened, right? Right,
1: exactly. Because the whole course would have been built by dredgings. And so it had been a completely manufactured course um, like the Lido was originally which would have been, you know, an really, especially in those days, a really impressive engineering feat. Um, but that was McKenzie just saying, like, if I have a blank canvas and I can literally manufacture an entire site from scratch, what would I do? And it's just, an if you look at that routing plan, I mean, it's just a phenomenal course. And um, you know, that's a dream of mine to, to build that somewhere someday. Um, likewise, the, Augusta National Par 3 course that McKenzie designed, what he called the Approach and Putt course. Um, that which never got built. That never got built. You know, it was designed on the same piece of land where their current Par 3 course is, it was 20-acre site. And
0: Well, they just redid it. <laughs>
1: and they just redid it, yeah. Um, exactly. When, when I saw that they had, you know, one of those aerials that someone posted on Twitter of that site, it looked like they just dropped a bomb on it. I just thought for a second... Wait a minute! No, there's no way they're gonna actually build them. You know, I sent those guys. You know, I sent Augusta that that plan several years ago, and so they have it um, and they're aware of it. But that that would be a dream to build that somewhere someday. And and um, I I've looked into
0: maybe they could build it at the patch, the 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 public course that they're renovating.
1: That'd be sweet. Um, But then, so those are courses that that he designed that never were built. So have never come to fruition. And then of courses that he did build that are gone. There's one to me that's really, really important and that I, I actually worked with a developer a few years ago. We had a site in Florida where we were actually going to build it. By the way, this was before the Kaiser family announced they were doing the Lido project. So this was not like trying to rip off that concept. Um, but this plan was for a course called Bayside, which was on Long Island mm-hmm. in New York. And there's a lot of really, really interesting things about that. He pro-
0: wrote about that one a lot, yeah. seemingly. He would reference and, in and the Greens, right? Okay.
1: Well, he was building that, you know, at the same time he was building Augusta. And in those days, you know, this was 1931, you know, so this is like the Depression is full on at this point. And McKenzie was thinking really a lot in this, you know, this idea of economization, economization of design, economization of construction, and economization of maintenance. And so how can you do more with less, essentially? And you see that at Augusta, where Augusta, when it was originally built, only had 22 bunkers. And so it was just this idea of, you know, economy and bunkering, which was, in those days, a very novel idea. And it was like, well, how do we create all the strategy? With mostly landforms and other features, but not bunkers because bunkers are expensive to build, they're expensive to maintain. And so he took that even further at Bayside. Bayside originally only had 18 or maybe 19 bunkers on it. And it was just a flat, this is like one of the things that's interesting to me about this site. It was just a flat piece of land, no inherent interest. The site was just a rectangle. And so it was basically like a blank canvas and, um, and there was like old stone walls that zigzagged through the property that they had to bury. So it's like, they buried these stone walls. And they created little mounds, right? Mounds over them. And so it's like, they, they either got fill material or they cut probably a combination of both. They, They definitely cut material in certain areas and filled. And so he did this, you know, cut and fill process to create all of these artificial landforms that didn't exist. And it was all it was just a very simplistic concept. And it was good routing. Um, not like the greatest golf course you're ever gonna play, but it was always from the get-go, it was always a public fee course. It was never a private course. And so the idea was
0: it was affordable public golf was the exactly, idea. Exactly. Exactly.
1: How do we build something that's economical to build, something that's economical to maintain, something that'll be, you know, affordable public access golf. And so to me, that's a really, really inspiring project. And it's just a shame that that was, you know, that property was sold to a housing developer in the fifties and now it's just covered with houses. But, um, that I would be
0: any of those, if there are any green remnants or anything in, the, in people's backyards, probably.
1: I, from looking at the, I have not been actually to that site. Um, but from looking, I've studied it. you know, I studied a lot and I have it mapped out in CAD. Um, I don't think so. I think it was just absolutely leveled. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, yeah, I, I, I'd be really surprised if that's the case, but I, I think they just wedged in a bunch of little lots, and they probably just nuked the whole site.
0: And uh, what, what's, been, what's been your favorite uh, McKenzie uh, course that you've uh, you've seen, and, and why? My
1: favorite McKenzie course that I've seen, um, I have to say Cypress Point. You know, <laughs> it's hard, <laughs> it's hard, hard not, not to. to um, I mean I've got other favorites for for different reasons you know sentimental reasons uh, Northwood is is very near and dear to my heart um, I, I just love that property and
0: be something if they it's got so put much put potential I mean it's great as things, it is so yeah. but
1: it's got yeah it's got an enormous amount of potential and you know hopefully one day we could we could do something there um, but yeah it's hard not to say Cyprus I mean Cyprus is just is um, it's really awe-inspiring that that site is just world-class and you know it's a world-class routing and a world-class set of greens on you know just the most interesting geography looking out at the pacific ocean so it's just it's phenomenal
0: i feel like uh Mackenzie was was not one to like put on that his work was you know so so great like you know he always held the old course in such high esteem but that the writing that you have in your book about uh, after, after he built Cyprus, where he was like, you know, I'm not, I don't want to say, but this might be better than the old course. Yeah,
1: Yeah. that's a great article. (laughs) Yeah, it's an incredible article. (laughs)
0: Like, and you could tell, like, he, you know, he held his work in high regard, but he wasn't ever, like, one to be like, this is the great, you know, like, some architects, this is the greatest land I've ever, like, Cyprus was the one where he was like, you know what, this one might be better than the old course. (laughs) Well, yeah,
1: he had great, Great admiration and just a a true love for the old course, and and so nothing could surpass that. And so, um, and I think that was one of the big things that he and Bobby Jones bonded over so much is they both had such mutual admiration and love for the old course. Um, And so, yeah, you're right. You know, he would never, you know, just come out and say, "Oh, I'm," you know, "this is better than the old course." But he was very, very careful in that article to say why. He thought it was as good or maybe better, but, um, you know, he, I thought he, he paid deference well. In, in
0: <laughs> All right. Well, I, uh, I appreciate the time. Every, how can people purchase your book?
1: Yeah, we're in the middle of having another printing. The third printing is in production and, um, we'll be ready in a couple of weeks and, um, you can go to the website, org is the Alistair McKenzie Institute and you can order it from the website there.
0: Awesome. I, uh, I recommend it. I mean, I guess when we release this, it'll be after father's day, but, uh, you know, it's a good, it's a good gift for yourself. <laughs> so thanks, Josh. How can people find you? you're, you're on Instagram.
1: Yeah. Um, Instagram is, uh, McKenzie Institute. Um, Twitter is Dr. McKenzie spelled out D O C T O R McKenzie. Um, and, and then, then you've got your design business yeah and then and then on Twitter um, I should probably be more active but um, <laughs> on Twitter I'm pack golf design uh, and um, that's it just well, Twitter <laughs> sometime we'll
0: we'll talk architecture more but I I'd wanted to, to just kind of profile Mackenzie and and your in the great book that you produce so um, future podcasts to come but thanks Josh so much for the time
1: I oh, really appreciate you having me on thanks Andy
0: For listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast, today's episode was edited by Matt Ruches. Thank you, Matt. Um, as a quick reminder, I mentioned it at the top. We are we have Club TFE Hummin. It's our membership. It's a great way to support our company, um, what we're doing. If you like what we're doing, it is one hundred and twenty dollars for the year. You get loads of content. I've had a number of people come up to me uh, at events at the U.S. Open and tell me how good of a bargain this is because of everything that they're getting. Um, there are tons of articles. There are tons of course reviews and write-ups. You get the entire back catalog if you join. I've had a few people ask, like, is it? does it end at the end of the year? You get it. It's a year from the day you join. So if you join today, your membership ends in the end of June or that, a year from the day you sign up. Um, what we'll have coming up, we're on a big... Uh, northeast excursion here. We'll have some new uh, reviews from the the Met section. So we'll have some New York golf courses featured on uh, on the membership here shortly. So if you're uh, if you're looking uh, to get more from us, or if you're looking to support us, Club TFE is the, one of the best ways to do it. Uh, sign up at thefriday. dot slash membership. Uh, you can see all the everything going on and what you get included in that membership there so thank you so much and we will be back on tuesday with a new episode uh for you guys